12, Episode 5. Please proceed with caution. This podcast contains naughty stuff. Welcome to 12 with Sarah Sloan, a podcast series exploring the 12 different ways a woman is apparently able to orgasm. I want to empower women and those who adore them by exploring the female erotic. I'm on a quest to learn more about my sexual desires and improve my relationship with myself, my body and my partner of 10 years, referred to here as H. If you are new to 12, I recommend you start at the beginning of the series. If you are enjoying what you are listening to, help get 12 to other people by subscribing, rating and reviewing the podcast and telling your friends. This episode is dedicated to the clitoral orgasm. My old friend. I discovered my clitoris when I was very young. I used to masturbate all the time. My parents called it humping. I remember doing it in the classroom once at primary school. The stuff teachers have to deal with. It can't have been too bad though, because no one ever told me off. I was either very subtle or my teacher was brilliantly open-minded. I remember my mother telling me that it was fine, but that it was best to do it in private. On reflection, that conversation might well have happened after my inaugural classroom self-love session. Throughout my life, I have benefited from my mother's extensive wisdom. In my 20s, she shared that in her experience, problems in marriages boiled down to either money or sex. Honestly, I think there are other factors facing my generation. Division of unpaid work, co-parenting, huge expectations of each other. I'm sharing this because she put a lot of emphasis on sex in a way that led me to associate it with pleasure, love and connection. I am privileged and grateful that no one ever shamed me for masturbating. And then there were the films and books I came across at home. I was bored a lot as a child, so I trawled through my parents' DVD and book collection to find sources of entertainment. When I was around 10 or 11 years old, I watched the Rocky Horror Picture Show every Saturday morning for about a year, quickly followed up by Gigi of all films. What a combination! For listeners who don't know, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is a British 70s cult classic in which sweethearts Brad and Janet discover the eerie mansion of Dr Frankenfurter, a transvestite scientist. As their innocence is lost, Brad and Janet meet a houseful of increasingly wild characters. The climax being when Frankenfurter unveils his creation, a muscular man named Rocky who wears nothing but a tiny pair of gold speedos. But his outfit is positively pedestrian compared to most of the cast, which includes Susan Sarandon, who dance and sing their way through the film, wearing fabulous corsets, stockings and suspenders. Gigi, by contrast, is an American 50s love story set in Paris. Then there was the story of O, a book I found in my parents' bookshelf when I was about 14 and hid among my possessions for months. Story of O is a French erotic novel that was first published in 1954. What follows is a description taken from Wikipedia, a tale of female submission involving a beautiful fashion photographer named O, 
who is taught to be constantly available for oral, vaginal and anal intercourse, offering herself to any male who belongs to the same secret society as her lover. She is regularly stripped, blindfolded, chained and whipped. Her labium is pierced and her buttocks are branded. It was initially written as a series of love letters between the author Anne Desclos and her lover. Understandably, it left a powerful impression on me. I think it took the shame out of different sexual acts and presented them as something deeply connected to emotion, very complex, but also wildly exciting. It has been said so many times before, but what a difference one body of water can make on people's attitudes. We British are still so ill-equipped to talk about sex, and yet the French excel in this area. I am really grateful that I was introduced to the more diverse side of sex through a French female psyche, albeit quite extreme. Regardless, as you can see, I had lots of material to keep me happily masturbating, which in turn probably kept me from being more inquisitive when boys became potential boyfriends and all around me, it seemed, began engaging in sexual acts in parks, garages and at house parties. But also something that probably kept me wary and possibly a little bit afraid. I wasn't ready for buttock branding. According to the Huffington Post, a national survey was taken a few years ago asking women about masturbation. It reported that one in five women said they had never masturbated, the main reasons being stigma and lack of information about how. My school sex education didn't cover any information that I can remember about the anatomy of the vulva and I don't recall the use of the word pleasure at any point. Unsurprising, really. Can you imagine the outcry if teachers framed sex to young people in terms of pleasure? Parents would be outraged. The British government have published the first new guidance on sex and relationship education in 19 years. In a recent article in Schools Week, they share a few of the topics that secondary schools are being asked to cover. I understand and completely salute these topics being taught. But wow, no wonder sexual pleasure remains buried. Check this lot out. As part of the RSE curriculum, pupils will learn about how stereotypes can be damaging, criminal behaviour in relationships, such as violence or coercion and what constitutes sexual harassment and sexual violence and why they are always unacceptable, their rights and responsibilities online, how sexually explicit material like pornography presents a, quote, distorted picture of sexual behaviours, amazing, sexual consent, exploitation, abuse, grooming, coercion, harassment, rape and domestic abuse, forced marriage, honour-based violence and female genital mutilation. My conclusion? We need to talk to our children about it rather than outsourcing it to anyone else. Schools have got their hands full and the best place to start is with confidence in our own sexual pleasure. The good news is that if you don't masturbate and or want to discover more about the fun to be had, there are online resources that are well worth the investment. OMG Yes being the best I've seen. It is the creation of a group of scientists who really care and take the topic of female sexual pleasure seriously. They had to invent a whole new 
vocabulary to describe what they found through their study of 2019 to 95 year old women and they don't mess around you go from headshot of beautiful strong articulate woman to that woman's vulva and how she gives herself pleasure in a heartbeat there are 12 yes people 12 is obviously a sexually cosmic number ingredients to enhance our pleasure of the clitoris Examples include accenting and orbiting. So quick, go now, check it out if you haven't already. Oh no, no, wait, 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 come back, come back. Finish this podcast first. H and I tried accenting. Following the instructions on OMGS, H used the technique that he knows gets me going, a broad circular motion around the hood of my clitoris. He then added pressure to one part of that motion at a time. So he started with the top right corner to see how that felt. It wasn't doing anything for me, so he tried above the clitoris and kept applying pressure to each area that he usually spends time stimulating. Finally, he hit a spot at about nine o'clock, top left-hand corner that was hugely arousing for me. But the speed of his touch and the intensity had to be right too. Quite quick, but not too hard in my case. Once we nailed it, I could have stayed there all day. It wasn't too much either, which I found interesting considering how close to the clitoral hood it was, an area that I usually find too sensitive to spend much time with. Apparently, the spot that feels best can change over time and day to day. Don't you love that? We're just so unpredictable and complicated. You need a way to communicate what is working if you want to try accenting. Then together you can go on to what OMGS describe as, quote, the most rewarding scavenger hunt of all time. What I like about accenting is that the basis is what is already working. So it's all about finessing and involving what already feels good using focused pressure and the right speed on that spot. Averaging just one-eighth the size of the penis, the clitoris has nearly double the nerve endings. And, as Emily Nagoyski says in her book Come As You Are, it can range in size from a barely visible pea to a fair-sized gherkin, or anywhere in between. And it's all normal, all beautiful. My two favourite fun facts about the clitoris. One, the clitoris never ages. It works just the same when you are 20 as to when you are 95. Two, it is the only known body part with the sole purpose of pleasure. <sighs> now there's something to celebrate. Because of the way my body is put together, I can stimulate my clitoris whilst having sex. Wait, wait a minute, what? That's right, along with roughly 70% of women, I can have a clitoral orgasm during vaginal intercourse because of the way my body is put together. Just like some people can touch their nose with their tongue and others can't, some people can have a clitoral orgasm during vaginal sex and some people can't. I have been reading the amazing Nimco Ali's first book, What We're Told Not To Talk About, a collection of women's accounts from East London to Ethiopia. Nimco, if you haven't come across her, is a feminist, anti-female genital mutilation campaigner and in her words, a professional oversharer we have something in common. She's an incredible role model. 
When exploring women's experiences of orgasms, she comments on the section entitled Faking It, quote, I think of all those millions of women who thought they were frigid because they didn't have a vaginal orgasm. According to a survey she cites of 2,000 people in Europe and the US, the following is true. 68% of straight women say they faked, 59% of gay women, and the male stats were below 30%. Is it just me, or are these statistics incredibly high? So if you fake your orgasms, I hope you take comfort from the fact that you are definitely not alone. I wonder how many of us fake our orgasms because of the belief that we should be able to have a clitoral orgasm through vaginal sex, and the misconception, therefore, that if we can't or don't, that there's something wrong with us. Better to fake it than open up that can of worms. But the science proves that this simply isn't true. Most of the articles about faking focus on the reasons being that women say they're bored, and there will be other reasons why people fake their orgasms but I wonder how many women are faking because they think it should be happening. What I'm learning is that if you spend time getting to know your body, you'll be able to show a partner what to do. In Nimco's words, quote, if girls don't feel free to explore their bodies and learn what feels good, and if you add that to the bizarre idea that men are supposed to somehow know what to do, it is a recipe for really rubbish sex. Aside from masturbation being natural and healthy, it teaches girls what they like sexually. In my mind, the more informed and confident women are in their sexual pleasure, the lower those stats for women will become. And let's be honest, by faking, we are reinforcing the current norm, which at best deprioritizes female sexual pleasure, and at worst makes it a taboo, leaving our sexual, spiritual and psychological needs out in the cold. I've been doing a lot of soul-searching recently. I figured that if I am to create the best possible version of 12, I need to work on my own problems. I'm one of those women who distracts herself from her own issues by trying to help everyone else with theirs. If you aren't that woman, then you have a friend who fills this role. It is hilarious how strong my instincts are to reflect conversations away from me and back onto others. I'm not sure you'd believe this having listened to this series so far, but I'm not brilliant at talking about myself, more specifically, my problems. So I'm going from the sublime to the ridiculous here. No sharing to completely oversharing. Up until recently, H and I have had periods when we have had little to no sex life. It's easy when you have young kids to point the finger at that and move on. Instinctively, I knew, however, that H and I were experiencing something a little more complex than this. Or at least, I wasn't prepared to settle for little to no sex. As you have heard from the beginning of this episode, I've always seen sex as the lifeblood of a successful relationship. And I wasn't prepared to give up. So I started reading. I came across the idea of polarity and it really struck a chord. Opposite energies bring life to earth. As long as there is an opposite, there is connection and energy. Think about the North and South Pole or how electricity works. The same has been documented through time in terms of the importance of balance between female and male energies. Iconic symbols that bring this concept to life include the Taoist yin-yang, Buddhist endless knot and Celtic double spiral. 
Kate Raworth refers to this balance in her revolutionary and gripping book, Donut Economics. Each design, she says, quote, invokes a continual, dynamic dance between complementary forces. Balance. It's all about balance. And that is the same when it comes to female and male energy. Unless you identify as non-binary, you will have either dominant female or male energy. Lots of people will have the energy that relates to their birth gender, but others won't. And energy can change. It doesn't matter who's feeling which energy. Polarity exists when a couple's energies are different, and the bigger the difference, the bigger the attraction. If you are deeply rooted in your feminine energy and your partner is loving their masculinity, sparks are going to fly in the bedroom. Because of my old work, running a department responsible for securing millions of pounds from corporations and high net worth individuals in a male-run organisation within a patriarchal system, in order to thrive, I learned to operate in my masculine. I'm not saying that I went there kicking and screaming, and I'm not saying that I had to do that. Being completely honest, for a long time, I took real pride in being able to play with the big boys. Check me out, I'm leaning in. But then there was the stress. I am naturally feminine, and operating in my masculine for long periods, like years, just started to take its toll, it seems. I was stressed most of the time. Not at work. Oh no, I wasn't prepared to show weakness there. It came out at home. And here's the twist. According to Tony Robbins and his team of relationship experts, when a woman is under stress, she goes into her masculine. Double bubble, or a vicious circle, however you want to describe it. I was operating in my masculine, which was making me stressed, which was drawing out my masculine even more. So for me... And this won't be the case for everyone. Really, honestly, please take that on board. My career was screwing up the polarity between myself and H, who naturally sits in the masculine. The sameness in our energy was creating nothing but neutrality. Zero spark. And now? Well, as you know, I've taken my career in a completely different direction and it seems to be having quite the impact. Next episode, the blended orgasm. Follow and connect via Instagram at 12 for pleasure. And if you are enjoying 12, help to reach others by subscribing, rating and reviewing the podcast and telling your friends. Thank you so much for listening.